Life Audio. Welcome back to the Gospel Rant Podcast. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard with Gospel App Ministries. So for you who have just joined us, this is a rant. We're going to go places that most dare not. Don't necessarily think of a three-point sermon, but we, we might do some uh, three-point stuff. But this is going to be a bit looser than that. So it's best to see it as a dialogue. Look, you know, you're hearing my side, but my goal is to be in your brain. And as your brain generates a question, I'm asking them for you on my side of the mic. At least that's the uh, the, the hope. Welcome to those of you who have shifted over from the forgiving path. We're going to uh, be uh, shutting that podcast down so that I can start a new podcast called The Good Enough Parent. We'll tell you more about that. But anyway, welcome all you forgiving pathers. Okay, why rant? I mean, a lot of times in the history of biblical interpretation, application, we, we get stuck in uh, exegetical ruts. You know, one person said it, then the next person followed them, and then followed them, and followed them, and so on, until we we stop mining the passage to see something different and applying it to our, our current uh, lives. I'm just saying, in the Sermon on the Mount, we got to get it right. It's the foundation of Jesus's gospel and the rest of his life. And I think we, uh, yeah, I think we've become historically, biblically sloppy. So listen, invite your friends. It could be very eye-opening. Tell your Bible study group, missionaries, pastors, you know, we're cool with all of that. Send it to your email list, Twitter it, Facebook it, Snapchat it, whatever you got to do, get it out. Give us feedback. We encourage that. You won't be the first. Bill at gospel-app.com. We love hearing that. But before we plunge in, many of you already know that the Gospel Rant is now partnering with Life Audio. Uh, So that means a few changes. Not too many, but here's one. We're going to take a break to hear from a sponsor. That's right. We've got sponsors. And when we come back, we'll get right back into the Sermon on the Mount. Stick around. Well, good day to you. It's Joel with The King Country dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith, and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Welcome back. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think, Jesus says, that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Abolish in the Greek is kataluo, which means to detach something as part of a uh, demolition, to ruin it, to end the validity of. Fulfill is pleroo, which is to complete or to bring to a designed end to fulfill an obligation or a law, a promise or a prophecy, that kind of thing. Okay? Look, we know what's going on. Jesus, a lot of his 
ministry, he was accused of being against the law, undermining the law. And we have a word for that, antinomian, against, antinomian, the law, against the law. And he was being accused by some religious leaders. It's recorded in the Gospels, probably not all, but some. And they said he was, you know, loosening the law. He, he was uh, abolishing the law. He was undermining it by his interpretation and the things he allowed his disciples to do. So think about a, a populist politician who is telling people what they want to hear so that they can get a following. And again, not by words, but actions. So think of eating on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees saw him as being progressive, meaning watering down the Torah and, of course, undermining them and their authority and their teachings. So he's going against what they're saying. He's creating division. Now, look, I'm not into Pharisee bashing. I am sure that there were well-meaning scholars who wanted to know how to get to their goal. I mean, I think a lot of well-meaning people. But I'm going to suggest that their ultimate goal was to whether they knew it or not, was, or willing to say it or not, was to experience and know the favor of God. They wanted to hear God say to them, well done, good and perfect servant. And of course, this, this implied that, that you know when they finally saw God as the judge, that he wouldn't be angry at them or critical of them or condemn them, his wrath, right? But they, what they wanted to hear was that they had done a good job, that they were his beloved son or daughter with whom he's well pleased. And that's Pharisees. For the Sadducees, that goal would best be accomplished by temple rites, and in particular, the sacrifice. So, look, we're all sinners. The Sadducees would agree with that. But the Torah has defined a way for sinners to get back into God's favor. I mean, theoretically, uh, to avoid wrath and, and good graces of God. So, at the very pinnacle of all of that was the annual Yom Kippur celebration, where the high priest legally put all of the sins of all Israel on the head of a goat and then slaughtered it and proclaimed it is finished, meaning that at least uh, God's wrath couldn't fall upon Israel. Now, God's favor, that's a different ballgame. I don't, I don't even know if the Sadducees spoke of that uh, to, for uh, any process in the temple where God would say, I love you because you did that. I, I don't know. If somebody knows something, let me know. Bill at gospel-app.com. And the Pharisees, you know, they were on board with the temple's role in all of that. Um, they didn't agree with the Sadducees on a lot of things, but on the role of sacrifice they did. But they also felt strongly that God was perfectly righteous because he's God, and he demanded that of his people. So it's not just the temple and the temple rites uh, three or four times a year. If we want to please God, if we want a shot at getting God's hug and him saying, well done, good and faithful servant, we need to do the things that he wrote that were prescribed by God, at least. And if we didn't, we should only expect the wrath of God. And again, I think the Pharisees fell into that. You know, there's avoiding the wrath of God, legally taking care of that. and But then there's also earning God's love, earning God's favor. Um, I don't know. The distinction between those two, I think, is very, very important. Jesus is going to work both. It's wild. So the Pharisees and the rabbinical scholars, I mean, certainly since the exile, certainly since Israel returned to the land, they were codifying what the right things are to do that the law requires. Okay? Jesus didn't fit that mold. 
to say that it was a question of just interpretation is a bit oversimplistic. To say that it's a question of uh, whether or not we should try harder is also misleading. No one tried harder than the Pharisees, at least on paper, uh, apart from Jesus, but I mean other human beings. No one tried harder than them, and they were struggling every day to do more and more and more. I mean, when Jesus had conversations with the Pharisees, and look at the life of Paul, he recognized that he didn't, he didn't do it as hard as he worked, as enthusiastically as he worked. Something, that critical inner voice said, you're not good enough. And let's face it, God in the flesh was standing right in front of them, Jesus. And the most righteous, quote, unquote, men didn't recognize him, and they argued with him. They said that he, God, was wrong about the Torah, right? I mean, that's what's going on here. We have to laugh a little. And they despised God in the flesh, resented felt undermined by God in the flesh. Think of that. And they even arguably hated him and murdered him, some, right? This is how they treated God, and and they're claiming to be the most righteous. So, you know, when Jesus says your righteousness has to surpass, I I think, I don't know, was he smirking? Was he smiling? Did he even laugh? Because they're not even close, right? If... (sighs) The, the best thing that they could have done was to worship God, right? The Ten Commandments, and God is standing right there in front of them, and they did not. So, I mean, they broke the first three commandments, big time. So, the, they were way off. I mean, no judgment. I get it. I mean, I, I think I understand. I'm a recovering Pharisee. Um, and look, they had zero spiritual sensitivity. So, and but by the way, neither no one else did either. The only entities that really got who Jesus was, it seemed to me, were the demons, because they were the ones who were afraid of him. And no one else hit the ground and worshiped the man Jesus, right? Nobody. A couple of people said he was Jesus, but nobody hit the ground, all right? So what I'm going to suggest is that Jesus had a very different view of the law and the role of the law, a higher view of the law. The law uh, wasn't the end. I mean, to obey the law isn't the end. It's the means. Um, so the, the goal was, the real goal was to experience the love of God and to love others, to experience the favor of God and to feel God dancing over us. That's our goal as human beings. It's to be right with him and for him to be right with us. And, and, and same for others. The goal is for humans to be able to once again love God and love others, including enemies, by the way. So in those days, think Rome, but today, think Putin, and to be able to feel and experience love from others. We're, we're so far from that. That's one of our passions at Gospel App is to help us lean into that. But God's starting point is far more sophisticated than the Pharisees, right? For the Pharisees, you know, the best way to get there is you educate people you teach, you disciple, you hold them accountable, you shame them, you criticize them uh, in, in order to in, improve their righteousness performance. So you legislate righteousness. So here's the law. Here's the, the unpacking of that, how it applies to day-to-day life. And your job is to lean into it over and over again and to work hard at it. And look, if an exception comes up, the one that we haven't thought about that's not clearly defined by the law, we'll get, put our best legal minds on it, and we'll divine uh, an expanded codified requirement. And by the way, let's not be hypocritical here. This is largely what Christianity feels like to a lot of folks, probably exactly what we've done, good or bad. So Jesus sees it differently. It's a different movement 
to get people into the good graces of God so that they can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, that they could feel the embrace of God, feel God's kisses. And both the Jewish scholars and Jesus used the Torah uh, as their foundation. So nobody was antinomian here, including Jesus. So for the Pharisees, all legislation and righteousness conversations began and ended with Torah and obedience to the Torah. For Jesus, all righteousness conversations started in the heart of God for unrighteous unworthies, for unrighteous unworthies. So for the Pharisees, the Messiah was a conquering king, most likely, but he came to judge right and not right people based upon the law, looking at their actions. For Jesus, the Messiah was a rescuer for the unworthy, unrighteous people who by their own works would have only been subjected to wrath of God. So he came to make a way for the unworthy, the failures, a Toraic way, the Torah, for those people to be reunited and embraced unhesitatingly by God, because that's what they wanted. That's what Jesus wanted for them. So back when we looked at righteousness in the Beatitudes, we said that there were two legitimate ways to access righteousness, to become righteous, and therefore to be subject to the blessings of God, right, in all of them. So way number one, you do law perfectly. No one has done that. I think we all get that. I think even the Pharisees got that. No one ever will. At the end of the day, the Pharisees never, ever, ever knew if they had pulled it off or not. And and I bet in the still quiet moments in the darkness, they knew it. There's no record of a Jewish legal expert proclaiming themselves finally in God's favor. They just wouldn't do it. They couldn't. It's sad, right? I mean, these the proud bearers of righteousness never knew. So I get it. Um, like I said, I'm a recovering Pharisee. The law is unrelentingly perfect and exact. God is, and I'm speaking humanly, a screaming perfectionist. He's God. And the law is the codification of two great commands, neither of which we can pull off. And that's love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul. Nobody's done that, not perfectly. And then we're supposed to love our neighbor the same way with all our heart, mind, and soul. And that neighbor includes enemies. Well, honestly, Who does that? The Pharisees didn't do that. Look how they treated Jesus. I mean, busted. And look, neither have I. Have you met my neighbors? Have you seen my enemies? There's a reason I call them enemies. And and remember, this righteousness manifested by how we do the law in toto must happen from day one. The first day the the, the doctor slaps me on the behind. and we have to do it 10 times out of 10, 24-7, our entire lives, no exception, because the wages of any sin is death, judicial death, no exception. So look, I can see why there are so many Jewish volumes for helping people unpack the law for daily life, because we all want, we're all afraid of seeing God. And if there's anything we can do, right, to alleviate that, but look, The law is way too righteous for us, any of us. There's no one righteous. No, not one. The Old and New Testament say that. It's a dirty little secret. No one, no one has ever been righteous based upon their own record. I mean, think of the most righteous person, Billy Graham, Mother Teresa. Pick pick somebody. They didn't make the cut. Abraham was a very faulty person. I mean, he pimped his wife twice. Nowhere is it argued that, that he was judged as righteous before he did anything. 
We often try to read that in the text, but in Genesis 15, he is just deemed as right with God, by God. He is the father of all unrighteous who are deemed to be righteous and, and, and are shoved into a dynamic, permanent relationship with the perfect God, yet imperfect. And don't mistake this, God never, ever lets the tentacles of the law and the law's requirements loose. There has to be a payment, a fulfillment. There must be a trial. This is how you you fulfill law. There has to be a trial. That's what the law is all about. And there must be justice, real justice, and it must be satisfied. We can argue why God set it up that way. Um, Okay, Uh, I get that. That's a fun argument. We'll do that some other time. But honestly, it's over my pay grade. But it is clear this is how God has set it up and, um, and fulfills it himself, Jesus. So in the end, becoming right with God is not given to the worthy, but the unworthy. And that's all there is. You may be more righteous than me, but honestly, that's a pretty low bar. I mean, good on you, by the way. No, no judgment from me. But no, you're supposed to be as right as Jesus, as right as God. Romans 5.48, you must be perfect. We can water, we'll get to it, but you, you know, so many commentators try to water that down. Well, that's not what he meant. He meant something. No, 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 no. He is setting a high, high, high bar that everyone is going to fail. That's why we need a savior. Um, because we want that intimate relationship. We want to hear, I want to hear God say, this is my son, daughter with whom I'm well pleased. And that is given to, by the hand of God, to those who come unclean. They're unbelieving. We're unrighteous. The righteousness of God is bestowed to people like, like me. The Christ gift makes people like me, faulty people like me, now right with God, in good status with God. Not perfect by any stretch. I mean, look at Abraham after he was proclaimed right, or Moses or David. We are the loved unlovable. We are the enviable unenviable. All right, Matthew 5.18. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Um, pass away is parakomai. Uh, it's basically to bring to an end, no longer of any matter or influence. Uh, accomplished is genomai, which really a, speaks of birth, coming into existence. Uh, but you could also say in context, accomplished. But I wonder if it's speaking more of the birth of something obvious, something new, something we didn't see before, uh, an enemy the law has uh, that that can actually fulfill it. Not enemy, but a process that can actually satisfy the law that we didn't see before. So imagine this. Until a sufficient righteousness has been birthed, right? Uh, Genomai, birth, that takes the law seriously. I mean, perfectly seriously. Look, we're not going to pull it off. We just won't. All the laws, all, all of our actions, right? Clean hands in Matthew 5, 8, pure heart, Matthew 5, 8, our motivation. We're just not going to pull it off. We will always fall short, even on our best days. So once again, how do you fulfill the law? It requires a trial. That's how law is fulfilled. A just trial where everything's in the open, is revealed, it's condemned per the law, no more, no less, paid for, per the law, no more, no less. And so the law is filled, it's satisfied, it's fulfilled. And that happened for people like me on the cross. For the Pharisees and Sadducees, the ultimate trial was Yom Kippur, which was done at the temple once a year. It's the Day of Atonement. There, they hoped that all the shortcomings of Israel were legally dealt with. Okay? 
Um, but it wasn't. And we're going to talk about that. But I need to take another short break for our sponsors. And we'll come back to the New Testament book of Hebrews. Okay? See you in a moment. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Okay, welcome back. Uh, man, we're in the weeds. I get it, but tra- track us. Um, you'll see how all of this applies to us, right? And, and we'll also see the conflict between the, Jesus and the Pharisees a bit better. So the offerings, the temple sacrifices, according to the Pharisees, Sadducees, had a place, and it was a good place. Uh, the the temple, right? Once a year, Yom Kippur, but the, they were never empowered. They they weren't by nature able to get rid of guilt of the the person who brought the sacrifices. They weren't, by their nature, able to earn God's favor for the person who brought the sacrifice. Listen to the author of Hebrews in 10, 1 through 7. The law, which would include the sacrifice, right? Do the sacrifice for your your crimes, is only a shadow. I mean, think of a shadow. It doesn't have the substance. You You can hit people with shadows, but it wouldn't make a difference. So the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifice repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. And part of the perfection is to have their guilt removed. You come feeling guilty, and according to the author of Hebrews, you leave Yom Kippur still feeling guilt. You may deny it, but it's going to come back up. Verse 2, if it could make perfect, right? would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It's just the opposite, right? It reminds you of your sins and shortcoming and and why when you finally see God face to face, oh my goodness, you're in trouble. Verse four, because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Now we're talking substance. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you weren't pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will. So Jesus became our resource, the way that we can finally get rid of guilt. 
and and by guilt i'm i'm thinking this specifically when i think about facing god face to face however however you see that whether it's a as a judge or you get to heaven and you see him face to face are you going to shy away are you going to look away are you are you going to be worried about what he thinks of you um are you going to look down at the ground like cain did are you still carrying guilt and shame jesus's death has the capacity to to remove that from us a little or a lot on our way to heaven. All right, let me put it a different way. All of those Jews left the Day of Atonement still not feeling good with God or that God was good with them, still not knowing and probably suspecting that it didn't work. They felt a little guilty for their sins. They were not freed from their shame and guilt. They couldn't look up in the face of God without being afraid that when God sees him, he'll be disgusted or disappointed or angry, right? Now, you could lie to yourself, denial, but nobody in all of Israel was free until Jesus. I mean, this is the big deal. Jesus, those people on the hillside felt freedom from their guilt that the Pharisees were longing for, and it was just handed to them. I mean, it's crazy. It's amazing. It's it's unbelievable, Jesus came so that we humans could feel free from the law's grip, that we could actually feel the favor of God. I mean, feel it, not just know it, but feel it. And so how? Well, the Pharisees are listening to this and saying he's watering down the law or he's he's misunderstanding the law. But no, he's going to say, no, I'm actually the one who's taking it seriously here. Matthew 5.19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same— will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So least, uh, insignificant, most insignificant, I think that's a really good uh, translation. Um, and so the, Jesus is saying, if, if you're teaching something different than me, um, in the kingdom of heaven, remember that's that, that idiom we've been talking about, meaning this experience of God's favor and blessing and not of God's wrath, this, this relationship with him. This is God, God looking at you and saying, well done, good and faithful servant. If you're, if you're watering, if you're pushing them back towards they need to do this on their own without Jesus, then those people are not insignificantly going to feel anything good from God, Right? So Jesus is saying in code, the one who takes the law very, very seriously, that's him, is the one who is and will experience God's favor. But if you don't take the law seriously and see that its justice is fully acknowledged and complete, completed in Jesus, you're just not going to be able to get close to God ever because you're going to be too afraid of what you'll see in his eyes. Um, a miracle needs to take place. And that's part of what happened on that hillside. So bottom line Jesus is not short-sheeting the Torah. In fact, he's arguing that it is the Jewish leaders and teachers who are watering it down or at least causing a misunderstanding of what's, what the law requires. No one is going to get into God's loving embrace by just reforming habits, by working harder. Right? Don't we know that? I think, I think down deep the Pharisees knew that, but just couldn't say it, couldn't admit it. Um, and it's all well-meaning, I get it. They're teaching that this is what the Torah says. Here is what you can do to satisfy the charge. And when you fall short, you repent, you do prescribed offerings. Of course, and, and by the way, for unknown sins and unknown falling short, there's an offering. Because, you know, 
that critical inner voice in your head going, wait, wait, what about the time you sinned and you don't remember it? For instance, in the Old Testament, if you intentionally walk over a grave, you're ritually unclean. But what if you walk over a grave and you didn't even know the grave was there? I guess the law says you're ritually unclean. So we give him offerings so that people can, can do these offerings and hopefully God accepts them for things that they did unaware. Listen, I was speaking to an Orthodox Jew in Jerusalem a while back, and we were talking about righteousness and sacrifice and and favor of God. And he said that he was committed to doing all of the 600 plus rules that have been teased out and codified uh, from the law and the prophets. And I asked him, honestly, so how's he doing? And this is what he said. I mean, this is it. Listen, he said that he had the top four or five down pretty well. Of 600 plus rules, he had the top four or five down, meaning he hadn't murdered anybody or committed adultery, right? But the rest, he didn't know. He wasn't sure. He said that in the end, he would have to throw himself on the mercy of God the judge for the rest. And God would hopefully see that he's tried hard, right? But he didn't know. He didn't know. I felt love for that man. I mean, right then I just went, oh my goodness. But I also felt like he was enslaved to his understanding of the Bible. A good man. He wanted to know the love of God, but he didn't know it. He only hoped for God's mercy, but he knew the law. He knew that he wasn't worthy of God's love. Oh my goodness, that was so sad. And look, what he was doing sounds good and sounds righteous. After all, he's trying hard, really hard, but ironically, he's loosening the law. Does that make sense? I don't want to come across judgmental because I don't feel that towards him. He's hoping that the law isn't as just and righteousness as it says it is, right? He suggests that God will, at a certain time, for people who try hard, wave his hand and overlook the law's justice. But in his brain, he knows that God won't do that. So, Jesus knows, and Paul will later say, at the wages of sin is death. It's just the justice of God. Again, we can bicker about why God set it up this way, but this is biblically how God set it up. There's no room for mercy in the law. That's a modern justice concept. And so today we pit mercy and justice against each other. Uh, That's not a biblical thing. Biblical mercy is pro-law. It's the greatest act of mercy for someone to take the place of a condemned criminal to dive their death but that's that's biblical mercy. Mercy does not undermine justice. It satisfies it. It's pro-justice. So bottom line, you're either proclaimed as right, which is perfect, or not right, guilty and subjected to death. I get it. This is troubling to modern sensibilities. It doesn't sound like Jesus we imagine. Here's a hard quote by Helmut Thielicke. I love this. If there is anybody who hopes that in Christ the real danger spots of life are rendered harmless, that nothing else can ever happen to us because, after all, he is the kind Savior who takes back even hardened sinners with no questions asked, well, that person must first come to terms with this text, which says that this Jesus Christ does not subtract one jot or tittle from the severity of God's will, that he came not to abolish this threatening law, but rather to fulfill it, indeed to make its profoundest threats apparent. The truth is that grace is not cheap, but tremendously costly. What could be more costly than that for which man must pay with his life? And Jesus demands nothing less than that. If we want peace, 
we must die utterly, radically, and uncompromisingly. Without death, there is no peace, but only fear, or failing this, only the narcotization of fear that the worldling seeks, close quote. All right, let me unpack that. So back to my friend, the Orthodox Jew. His path, which he works harder on than most people I know, is to earn God's favor choice after choice. And when he fails to pick himself up and do it again, go offer a sacrifice, well, the temple's gone, so he can't even do that. But he's committed to that path. In fact, you could say that he's enslaved by that path. And it's so biblical. Look at Psalm 1. There it is. He can point to it and say, see, God blesses the the person who is righteous. But it's not working. He's not feeling forgiven. He's not feeling adored by God. Or he's not even appreciated by God for trying. He's hoping for that. So there was only shame in his voice or fear. Uh, But I think it was more shame. Uh, Here's a, a man of God who doesn't know his relationship with God. He doesn't know God very well. He's hoping for mercy. In honest moments, when this man imagines standing in front of God as judge, the judge for every choice he ever made, good and bad, uh, including his heart's motivation, uh, his hidden inklings of his subconscious, how does he imagine it going down? He's an honest man. He, He knows the scale of the judgment of God, and he just doesn't believe that he can say he pulled it off. He's honest, not even close. He's going to, he needs God's mercy, and he's not even feeling that that's promised to him. He's hoping. He can't let, but he can't let this path go, this exercise go, right? Um, this hamster wheel. And to do that, listen, would be to admit even more error. Let the rest of his mind in on this dirty little secret that he's a failure. It's too much shame to admit that he was wrong. No judgment. I, I know exactly what he felt like. I felt the same thing at age 21 when, when I walked down the aisle of a church and I thought I was a righteous person until it became really clear I wasn't. And I had to admit that publicly. It was, it was shameful until I was set free from that. Well, that's the one path. The other path is that Jesus would live the perfectly righteous life that, that uh, the Pharisee didn't, that I didn't that I couldn't, humanly speaking, do. And then he dies, the law's condemnation for all of my friends and and my faults and shortcomings. This is biblical mercy, the substitute lamb. He can embrace that. He can accept that by faith. He can come to Jesus with empty, failed hands, held up, not asking for mercy, but actual justice, Um, that Jesus would take on his shoulders all all of his many, many years years-long failings. It's also biblical, Yom Kippur, but to get there, my Orthodox friend must die, meaning his worldview, his heritage, his former understanding, his former identity as an Orthodox Jew, his massive books of righteous efforts, his teaching that to others. He must turn away from that and run to Jesus alone. If you were, if you've watched previous, listened to previous podcasts, I spoke about my high school Bible test in a previous one. He must be willing to bring his record of success, tear it up, and throw it in the trash bin. He must die in those ways to find shalom, including the favor of God, which is what he's longing for. And the moment he does, he's going to feel a thousand pounds lighter. I did, and even feel God's favor and love for him, not because he was righteous, because he isn't, but because Jesus did it. It's so hard for us to do. Very hard for adults to do. And the older we get, it's harder still. We have so much 
to throw away, that we have to admit. It's our reputation at stake, right? And why? We hate admitting we got it wrong. If we, think of admitting decades of righteous efforts, right? But it's worth it. All right, we're going to pick it up here in the next podcast. Let me know what you think. Uh, we did get down into the weeds, but, but you know, we are talking about law and righteousness and the cross. Um, contact me, Bill, at gospel-app.com. Help us get the word out. We want to get dialogue going. And we're going to start at Matthew 5.20 next time, where Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Take heart, child of God. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for working everything out for my good. Help me trust in your perfect plan. Amen. Father, thank you for loving and caring for me. With Christian prayer meditation, you can pray along to prayers based on specific topics. Go to lifeaudio.com or search your favorite podcast app for Christian prayer meditation. You can also download the Abide app for biblical meditations at abide.com. Dot com.